Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for being here. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Patricia O'Hara, who passed away recently. I got to know her when I was working at 1199 SEIU. She was a fighter. She was a unionist. She was a really, really good person. So this episode is dedicated to her memory. In this episode, Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan and the Chinese act like it's a declaration of war. Kansas strikes a big blow for reproductive freedom. Alex Jones gets his and is embarrassed in court in the process. The Senate votes to offer NATO membership to Sweden and Finland. Guess who wants to end Social Security and Medicare? As they used to say on the old Jackie Gleason show, and away we go. First, Nancy Pelosi, Taiwan, and China. The Speaker of the House visited the island nation last week much to the chagrin of its neighbor, China. The history of relations between Taiwan and China are complex and are in some ways well above my pay grade. But in simple terms, China has always seen Taiwan as part of its territory. The Taiwanese, as you can imagine, beg to differ. The island where Chiang Kai-shek retreated after the revolution of 1949 has always seen itself as a nation separate from China, while the Chinese have always had reunification as a priority, not ruling out the use of force if necessary. Speaker Pelosi's trip was the first by a high-ranking U.S. official since 1997. She, of course, reaffirmed U.S. support for Taiwan as a democracy separate and distinct from the Chinese autocracy. Pelosi's visit was light on specifics and heavier on rhetorical flourishes. It had the effect of royally angering the Chinese, which both the Speaker and Biden should have expected. Just after she left Taiwan, the Chinese began a series of military exercises off that country's coast. These were live fire exercises unprecedented in the recent past. They were intended, I think, to show China's anger at Pelosi's visit. They may also have been to show the region that the continued Chinese quest to absorb Taiwan into the People's Republic of China is ongoing. There ought to be a few questions asked about both the visit and the response. Are the Chinese simply posturing with their military exercises? Some say the current government has absorption of Taiwan as a top priority. Would they risk their business relationship with the West to accomplish it? I think not. All you have to do is open an Amazon box and look at where the products we buy come from. Many, not all, but many have Made in China on them. I've said this before and I think it's worth repeating. Americans have become addicted to inexpensive products made in the People's Republic. Neither side, I think, is willing to scuttle the trade relationships that have developed despite the name calling and despite the rhetoric. You may have noticed the U.S. hasn't sanctioned China for its purchase of energy from Russia. There's a reason for that, and when the Chinese finish saber-rattling and sanctioning Pelosi's family, and when the U.S. woofing at the Chinese ambassador subsides, things will hopefully get back to a semblance of normalcy. Let's at least hope. Keeping our eye on the international front for a moment, The Senate voted 95 to 1 the other day 
to approve Sweden and Finland's application to join NATO. Guess who was the one who dissented? American hero Josh Hawley. Who else? Anyway, admitting the two countries isn't a done deal yet. All of NATO's membership, all 30 members, must vote to admit, and the U.S. now makes 23 out of that 30. The main impediments have been seen as Turkey and Hungary. Turkey made a deal in June that could, and I emphasize could, see them gives us, give a thumbs up. With Hungary and Viktor Orban, who we talked about last episode, you never know which direction they're going to go in. The whole point is to poke Russia in its eye for the invasion of Ukraine. They won't be pleased that its border with Finland, if approved, would double the size of NATO's presence. They have threatened Finland with dire consequences, like natural gas, cutoffs, and those sorts of things, should they join the alliance. Yet all this isn't a done deal yet. Both Finland and Sweden have a number of procedural hurdles to overcome, including seeing to it that military spending, military spending is at least 2% of their gross domestic product. What will Russia do once, as expected, both countries do become members of NATO? We will have to wait and see. Up next, Alex Jones gets embarrassed in court, then is told he has to pay a huge sum to the family of a child murdered in the Sandy Hook massacre. How many wellness pills does it take to satisfy a $49 million judgment? Stay with us. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation on my Facebook page at Mark Riley Media. Welcome back to The Intersection. Last week, I have to admit, my heart leapt with joy at first seeing InfoWars potentate Alex Jones humiliated on the witness stand and then finding out he'd been hit with a $49 million judgment for lying through his teeth about the Sandy Hook massacre. I have a special reason for my delight. Way back at the dawn of the 1960s, I attended the Sandy Hook School in Newtown, Connecticut. I was nine years old, and while details of memory may elude me now, I remember a few things. The school was very new back then, very new. And just like cars had that new car smell, Sandy Hook had that new school smell. As kids, we were drawn to its newness. Understand that at about the same time that we first started going to Sandy Hook, the Jetsons were on television. So there was this whole futuristic outlook. A man had just gone out into outer space the whole night. There was a futurism that, quite frankly, no longer exists. I do remember getting the best grades of my school career during that one year I was at the Sandy Hook School. Seven A pluses and 1A. You kind of do remember things like that. Then, many years later, I was asked to cover the aftermath of the Sandy Hook Massacre by the BBC. I'll never forget the faces of people who seemed unable to process the horror of that day. It left an indelible mark on my consciousness, even though I had not been in Newtown for decades. Imagine my fury 
on finding out there was a conspiracy pimp by the name of Alex Jones peddling the notion that none of it ever happened. That it was a government-controlled plot to take guns out of the hands of Americans. How simple is that? Jones, through his various media, had pushed a bunch of conspiracy nonsense before about moon landings, about 9-11, about the assassination of JFK and others, but Sandy Hook took the cake. I'm still not completely sure why his garbage made me so mad. Maybe it was because I grew up there and understood even as a black child the idyllic nature of the place and how it looked to me and other children. The facts are these. Alex Jones would need a stepladder to tie the shoes of a single Sandy Hook parent or victim. He's a lowlife, peddling nonsense in the form of conspiracies and his junk wellness supplements. At one point, he was clocking $800,000 a day and had 1.9 million people on YouTube. And in the aftermath of that kind of finance, the man was declaring bankruptcy seemingly every other day. Yet from the perspective of pure justice, the takedown of Jones by family attorney Mark Bankston had all the makings of a Perry Mason episode, which is exactly what Jones called it. He first reminded Alex Jones that he had testified under oath that he had no text messages about Sandy Hook. Bankston told him his attorneys had inadvertently sent him two years worth of text messages from Jones' phone. You guessed it, Sandy Hook was there. Jones' lawyers didn't even bother to claim the cell phone was privileged, allowing Bankston to use it. Jones was right. It was truly a Perry Mason moment. Sadly, even a $49 million judgment against him is unlikely to stop Alex Jones. He'll appeal. He'll keep claiming bankruptcy in the hope of running out the clock. His show, such as it is, will go on. Still, his supporters will finally see him for what he is, a money-grubbing charlatan who hopefully will eventually need a GoFundMe page to support him in his old age. It would certainly serve him right. But you know, there's a larger question here, a much larger question that has yet to be dealt with in the American consciousness. And that is simply this. How does this guy this peddler, this charlatan, this fool, end up making so much money and end up having the ear of almost 2 million followers on YouTube? How does a crank pull that off? I'm really, really curious to figure it out. And the fact that he works in the same business I worked in for quite a long time just makes me even angrier. And to be honest, there may be no stopping Alex Jones. Maybe there's absolutely nothing that can be done. But at least the parents of the Sandy Hook school shooting victims will get something, some kind of monetary recompense. Nothing, and I emphasize nothing, will bring back those children. The survivors, I believe, may have graduated high school by now. And think of how their lives have been impacted. 
Alex Jones, in a word, got his. From Alex Jones to Kansas, where there was a little good news. Last week, voters in that state decisively beat back an attempt to gut abortion protections in the state's constitution. That could have paved the way for restrictions and even an outright total ban. People from around the country are asking how abortion rights groups in Kansas pulled that off. The answer, according to an article in the Washington Post, is in organizing and reaching out to conservatives with the message that the government was overreaching and trying to roll back the constitutional protection. It is in their state constitution. There was a large voter turnout, 900,000 versus less than half million in the 2018 midterm primaries. Coalition seems to be the answer. That and stimulating voter turnout. It ought to be an abject lesson to those who say Democrats are about to lose the House at least, at least the House in this year's midterms. It does not, and I emphasize, it does not have to be that way if Democrats get their act together and reach out to people who they disagree with. You know, we all disagree to one way or another or to some extent or another with folks that you're friendly with. I know I do. There are a lot of very conservative people who are good friends of mine. I have said this before. In many instances, I've simply ignored politics in dealing with them. But even if I don't, if I come at them with respect, if I come at them with saying, look, I understand why you have a belief. I don't agree with it, but I understand why. Sometimes it even works. And in the case of Kansas, it really seems to have worked. Finally, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson wants to gut both Medicare and Social Security. Can the GOP go much further off the deep end? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. There appears to be no end to Republican lawmakers wanting to drag the nation back to the early 20th century. Latest case in point is Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin. He wants to make Social Security and Medicare discretionary spending subject to the whims of Congress. Under his plan, the programs would no longer be entitlements to all Americans who meet the criteria. This, of course, is under the guise of keeping both programs solvent. Johnson is careful not to talk about shrinking either Social Security or Medicare. He knows such advocacy could see him ridden out of town on a rail. And by the way, he's not the first person in Congress to float such backdoor lunacy. Florida Senator Rick Scott's 11-point plan for America had a similar attempt to upend both Social Security and Medicare. Both of these plans have the same basic flaw. They haven't figured out yet how to snatch entitlements away from people who benefit from them. 
It's typical Republican overreach. The sad part is Democrats have been unable to craft a message that calls it that, overreach. It's also more prevalent as the GOP moves further to the right. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says Democrats in the upper house will not allow the rug to be pulled out from under seniors. Let us truly hope not. Some of this crap is a direct result of the belief among Republicans that one or both houses of Congress are theirs for the taking in November. They should be so lucky. They're trying their best to drum Liz Cheney out of Congress. Polling has the Wyoming Congresswoman losing badly to her Trump-backed opponent. Though I may disagree with Liz Cheney on many policy issues, she's been a stalwart and champion of democracy while serving on the January 6th committee. There are even rumors of a run for president if she does lose her seat. I gotta tell you, the nation could do worse. It already has. Liz Cheney is clear about the moral bankruptcy of the party to which she belongs. She says she can't support any candidate who remains an election denier about 2020. That puts her well ahead of those wannabes who think they're the second incarnation of Donald Trump. Now, I doubt she runs. I seriously doubt she runs. But it's sad a major political party cannot come up with more like Liz Cheney. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.